Radcliffe. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 12. Continuing our series through the book of Mark that we've been in for the most part since I got here. Uh, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Can I confess something to you guys before we get started? Since I planned this series in the book of Mark, before I got here, I have dreaded this text more than any other that I've gotten to. There has been a pit in my stomach for months, knowing that this date was coming, knowing it was on the calendar, knowing I couldn't skip it. At one point, the sermon calendar had me preaching this text on Father's Day. And I was trying to rework that as hard as I could. Because I didn't want to do this on that day. And then God gave me COVID, and I missed two weeks. Uh, So here we are, not on Father's Day, but still with this text. God took care of that one for me. Before we begin, let me make clear why I have to preach this text. Because marriage and divorce matter to Jesus. He talked about them. He said they're important. The Bible talks about it. It tells us more than just what we see in this text. We still deal with divorce in our lives, and most of us either are, have been, or will be married at some point. So the topic of divorce just can't be avoided. It would be pastoral malpractice for me to skip this text. I've got to teach it. I have to preach it. We have to talk about it. And look at verse 1. He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again And again, as was his custom, he taught them. As was his custom, he taught them. And as he taught them, as he was doing what he was doing, preaching and teaching, sharing his gospel, he taught them. And part of that teaching is about divorce. It was in the course of his normal ministry, along the way to do what he came to do, that he covered this topic. Because he was asked this question, and he thought it was important enough to answer it. Within the gospel of the life of Jesus Christ, written by Mark, we get this little section that's dealing with divorce. And I think keeping that larger context in mind is actually going to help us understand what Jesus is saying here in these verses. This passage, this truth today that we're talking about, it's one of the reasons why, as long as I am your pastor, we will be primarily preaching through books of the Bible over and over from beginning to end. 
While I don't think it would be a bad thing for me to preach on the topic of marriage, I may do that someday through a short series. I don't think it would be a problem for me to talk about divorce because I think it's important. I think it's certainly better to cover these topics as Jesus did. He was preaching and teaching, and then he got here, and he moved on to something else. It's important. It's there. But he has a larger goal in mind than merely to give us commands that we have to follow here. In the course of accomplishing his greater purposes, he preached and teached about this, preached and taught about this. So I have to do the same. If it were up to me to pick and choose passages to preach or to skip, it would take me a long time before I got to this one. Not because I disagree with it. It's the word of God. I can't disagree with it. Not because I can't see the gospel in it, because the gospel is in it. It's just messy. It's just hard. Divorce is so prevalent that even if it hasn't happened to us, we've been affected by it. We've had parents, we've had siblings, we've had cousins, we've had friends who have been affected by it. There is no one in this room who has not had divorce happen to someone that they love. So when I talk about divorce, for no one in this room am I talking about something that affects other people. There are some weeks where you sit there and you listen and you think, you know what, that one didn't really get me. That wasn't a problem that I really deal with that much. And while you may not have had a divorce... You have been affected by a divorce. So it's hard. It's messy. But it matters. It's in the Bible. It's the next text. So here we are. These points from the text will drive the message today, drive the passage, and drive the sermon today. Divorce is due to sin. Marriage is the good design of God. But neither should be done lightly. Divorce is due to sin. We can see that in those first few verses there. A few weeks ago, I defined sin as anything which goes against God's natural design. And I think this text makes clear that divorce actually stems from sin in some instance. But it also makes clear that the law, both the moral and civil law in the Bible, allows for divorce. Look at verses 2 through 4. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. The law allows for divorce. They're right. It says that that's something that can occur. It can happen. It was evidently, though, a touchy subject even then, because did you see why they asked him this question? To test him. They thought they were going to trip Jesus up by asking him this question about divorce. They were hoping that he was going to step on a landmine in his answer. They may have even been hoping that this was the question with the answer which was going to get him killed. Notice in verse 1 where they were. This region is the same region that John the Baptist had been teaching in. Do you remember how John the Baptist died? What got him killed? Herodias, Herod's now wife was formerly married to Herod's brother. She divorced Herod's brother and remarried Herod, the king. John rightly called them out on this. It was a true teaching on divorce and remarriage which cost John the Baptist his head. If that thing happens to me today, you guys are going to end up in the newspaper. 
It was a touchy subject even then. But what they actually asked him was a question dealing with the Old Testament law. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus appeals to that same law in his answer. He says, what did Moses say? Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4 is what they're talking about. That's where they get their answer. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4 says, which should be on the screen behind me, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. And after she has been defiled, uh, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So yes, technically, the answer that they gave is right. Moses did allow you to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. But the problem here is that no one ever came to a firm consensus on what the grounds were for giving someone that certificate. He said, yes, it's possible. You can do this. But no one ever agreed on what allows you to do that. And there were basically two schools of thought that they were dealing with in this time that the Pharisees were asking about. There were warring camps, and that's why they asked him this question. One camp focused on because he has found some indecency in her, back in uh, verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24. And they pointed to that and said, it's got to be something like adultery. She commits adultery, therefore you can divorce her. They said adultery, something big, something major. That would have given you grounds for divorce. The other camp said, nope, he said I can do it, so I'll do it for whatever I want to. They said anything that possibly could maybe give a little bit of a reason for divorce, that's good enough. They said any reason the husband wanted to use, any particular annoyance, whatever excuse he had, One of the examples that they gave in their actual teaching was they said, if she cooks his food poorly, if she overcooks it or undersalts it, she can be divorced. Uh, My guess is that most of those marriages lasted about two weeks. Honey, the the broccoli was great, but man, that chicken was just bone dry. I'm going to have to let you go. That's the context that Jesus is giving this answer in. That's the camps that Jesus was having to deal with. But he points out that they're focusing on the wrong problem. They're focusing on what lets me do this, rather than focusing on the good design behind it. And in making that point, he tells them that divorce is allowed, but it's allowed because of our hard hearts. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Regardless of the reasons for divorce, the Pharisees are correct. It was technically allowed. There were some kind of grounds that would allow you to have a divorce. That was true then. That's still true today. We'll get to that toward the end of the sermon today. But it was never a good thing. Even in the law, this wasn't like a thing that people were excited about. This wasn't something that people were joyous to be able to have the opportunity to do. It was always due to sin. It was always due to a grievous problem 
in the marriage. And Jesus hammers that point home. He says, yeah, they allowed you to do it because you guys are sinners. Because every marriage is two sinners coming together to form one flesh. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. You see, they were missing the point of the passage back in Deuteronomy. Yeah, there's a little caveat there that you can do this. But look at all of the other things going on in that text. It did give a provision for how to divorce your wife. But the emphasis in that passage isn't on that ability. It's not a celebration of that possibility. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card for whoever decides to use it, whoever wants to pull that lever. What it is is a heartbreaking example of how the Old Testament law so often was meant to push back against our sinful impulses. To push back against the terrible things that we would do to each other if it were totally up to us without any kind of law, without any kind of good design of God behind it. It's to point us toward a greater design. Yes, it technically allows for divorce, but look at all the requirements, all the things it says has to be present in that text in order for that to happen. There has to be no love in the marriage, no favor. That should be due to some kind of indecency. We don't know exactly what that is, but it's not for any reason whatsoever. Certainly not because another woman came along. He says you have to give her a certificate. He says, you have to write this down, that this is what you are doing. You have to give her proof that she can take and prove to anyone who asks that you sent her away. She didn't abandon you. She didn't run off with someone else. You've already traumatized her by marrying her and then kicking her out. You don't get to muddy her reputation anymore. You don't get to have any further effects on her. You give her that certificate so that she can prove that you sent her away, that you no longer have a claim on her. And then when she marries someone else, then for whatever reason, is single again. The man dies. She gets divorced again. You can't have her back. There's no take-backs here. This is permanent. You kicked her out. You deal with it. I read also this week that that provision there at the end, that you can't have her back, was designed to prevent the men from passing the women around. That divorce couldn't be a cheap option to rent out your wife to another man for a little while, then have her back like nothing happened. That kind of conduct, the text says, is an abomination. It's a most grievous sin. Yes, the law gives provisions for divorce, but surely we can all agree that the picture it paints in that text is a tragedy. It's not a cause for celebration. That process... That possibility being allowed was due to the people's hardness of heart. It was due to their sinful nature. And that means that divorce was always the product of sin. That doesn't mean that there are not instances where you should get divorced. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that later. But it does mean that no divorce happens without sin happening first. There's no divorce that occurs without sin being present first. It's not a good thing. It's a problem. It's always the product of sin. You don't get to divorce without first going through sin to get there. And because Moses knew that people would continue to divorce until the end of time, they were always going to find some way to part from each other. He gave them this law, which was meant to provide some structure, some rules, to point to a better system, a better opportunity, to make sure that even when we hurt each other and that hurt results in divorce, 
that that hurt has an end. It doesn't go on for forever. The messy sin of divorce can't continue to spiral into chaos. There's a a structure here, a system here. Because though marriage, or though divorce, is always the product of sin, marriage is the good design of God. And it's that good design that Jesus points to in this text. He takes that aim from the Old Testament law, he takes that trajectory from the Old Testament law, and he points to and reveals the design of God that's behind it. While divorce is due to sin, marriage is the good design of God. Look at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You see, marriage was always the ideal. He's saying, yes, divorce was permissible because you are sinners who are going to continue to sin. But from the beginning, that was not the plan. From the beginning, there was a design. There was a plan for man and woman, male and female. He is quoting from Genesis 1 and 2, the creation accounts before the fall, before sin ever entered the world. And he's saying from day one, or day six, I guess, if we're talking about the creation of male and female, the two-gendered nature of human beings, male and female, biologically and ontologically, has been designed, purposed, And revealed to point to marriage. We have two genders because people get married. That's why. Divorce may be the reality, but marriage is the ideal. It's the picture. It's the point. It is and it always has been. Because marriage is a beautiful union. Look at the next two verses. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Marriage is always the ideal because of the beauty that is inherent within that union. Ray Orland wrote a fantastic little book on marriage called Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. And in that, he defines marriage as one mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. That this one man and one woman come together to form one mortal life. They fully share it together. They enjoy it together. They live it together. How beautiful is that? How perfect is it to be joined together in marriage? One man, one woman, coming together with complementary biology, complementary roles, complementary personalities to fully share their lives together. Tim Keller was writing a book on marriage, and in that book, he put the beauty of marriage in this way. He said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is actually all of our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, that's, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. It fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. You in your marriage are fully known and fully loved by your spouse in the best way that you can be with another human. You are actually fully known and fully loved by God perfectly, but the closest we get to that here on earth is with your wife. It's with your husband. They're the ones who fully know you and yet still fully love you. There is no one on earth who knows me 
half as well as my wife does. And there is no one who loves me half as much as she does. And that's just as true the other way. Whenever I am reminded of our mutual love for and knowledge of one another, I am reminded not just how beautiful our marriage is, not just how thankful for I am for our marriage, but how beautiful marriage is. How thankful I am that he gave us that gift. I'm reminded of how beautiful God is to give us the good gift of marriage as an earthly picture of his love for his people. I'm reminded of how thankful I am for that gospel love. That he loved his bride, the church, enough to give himself up for her. He both fully knows us and fully loves us. That combination of full knowledge and full affection, that leads to a kind of one flesh union that is utterly unique. It is utterly praiseworthy. It is utterly glorious. That is the only union that truly makes one out of two. Jesus emphasizes that in these verses, he is highlighting this aspect of marriage because it's not seen anywhere else. It deals most directly with the problem of divorce. That if you were two and now you're one, how can you possibly be separated? The design was to take two and make one. So let's pursue that design. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When a man and woman are united in marriage, that union is not ultimately brought about by the state signing off on the certificate. It's not ultimately brought about by the minister signing the certificate at the end or pronouncing them man and wife. It's not brought about by the man or the woman reciting the vows. It's not brought about by kissing each other at the end of the ceremony. It's brought about by God. He takes two people and he makes them into one marriage. There were two people and now they are one flesh. So marriage is the design of God which must be pursued to the end that divorce no longer happens. When we are married... And one flesh and never separated, we don't have to worry about divorce. It's not a reality anymore. God has joined these people together, so why should they be separated? If God does the uniting, but man does the divorcing, which work do we want to be a part of? Which one do we want to happen? Which one should actually be the one that we want to see accomplished? I'll handle more specifically the grounds for divorce and what we do now. How do we live as people in our lives uh, in light of this text later? But before we get there, let's make sure that rather than asking like the Pharisees for the rules, all right, what, what are the rules? What are the loopholes here? How can I get out of this? Let us take a moment to stare straight at the truth that while divorce is the painful result of sin, Marriage is the good and proper design of God for his people. It is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, he gave him woman. Marriage is God's good design for us. And divorce counteracts and defies that design. Neither of these should be done lightly. Neither marriage nor divorce. 
They're both weighty things which require a certain degree of maturity, a certain degree of sober thinking, not just about the practical impacts they have on our lives, but also about the spiritual repercussions of both marriage and divorce, and eventually remarriage. But this is a hard saying. This is not an easy thing to understand. It's not an easy thing to grasp. It's not an easy thing to say. It's not an easy concept for us to discuss. Look at verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. They didn't get it. He said it, and they were like, okay, we we need to know more, Jesus. We, We don't know what's happening. You have to explain this to us a little bit better, a little bit deeper. They needed further clarification. They heard what he said and had to hear it again. They had to hear it more plainly because they just couldn't really wrap their minds around this truth. And for us today, an emphasis on marriage with a certain condemnation of divorce, that is so foreign for us to ever actually hear that it may not be easy for us to hear today either. Divorce is so prevalent. It happens so often. There's almost no one who is ever saying, no, stay. Almost everyone always says, go, leave. So to hear it today may be hard, but Jesus said it, so we have to believe it. And what he said should lead us to the truth that we have to be careful to avoid adultery. Look at what he says in verses 11 and 12. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. He's doubling down on the permanence of that one flesh union of marriage to the extent that an earthly divorce may not actually nullify that one flesh union. So divorcing and remarriage in that instance, if it didn't actually nullify that union, that one that he's talking about, that's adultery. You're still married. You can't go with this other person. That's outside of the original marital union. That's outside of the design of God. Now, there are several caveats that I'm going to make here, and I'll get to those. I'll talk to the biblical grounds. But before we start eroding what Jesus is saying here, before we start carving away at the pretty clear command that we have here, before we put asterisks at the end of what he said, we have to sit for a second with the reality that a divorce under the wrong circumstances which leads to a remarriage, still under those wrong circumstances, that's sinful. It's not only sinful, it's adulterous. So we should be very careful in our marrying marrying, and our divorcing to make sure that we avoid these sins. And we live in a world where it happens all the time. But even so, we should be able to unflinchingly point out the brokenness and the havoc that comes from our cultural de-emphasis on the lifelong loving bond of marriage. There are few things in our society which are wreaking more havoc than divorce. And we should be able to point that out while also having the humility behind it to say, there's grace for you. There's grace for you, even if you've messed this up. It should lead us to some humility. We should hear this command and react with grace and by giving the benefit of the doubt to the people around us. In Matthew 19, which is the same basic passage in the book of Matthew, the disciples hear all of this that Jesus says to them, and they say, Whoa, Jesus, that sounds pretty intense. Maybe it would be better if we didn't get married. And Jesus just says, Yeah. He doesn't bail them out. 
He says, yep, you're right. If getting into it gives you that much fear to where you don't even want to do it, then don't. He doesn't bail them out. He says, yeah, not everyone can do this, so maybe some of you shouldn't. He's just emphasizing the weight of everything that we're talking about, that getting this wrong is a big deal. So both marriage and divorce shouldn't be done lightly. While there are no exceptions in this verse in Mark, in a similar passage in Matthew, we do get some exceptions. We also get some other teachings throughout Scripture that uh, flesh out this teaching of Jesus a little bit more to let us know a fuller picture of what he's meaning in these verses. But the fact that there are no exceptions here should again point us to the point of the text, which is that marriage is good and divorce is bad. So be careful. What are the exceptions, though? What are the, the asterisks that we put here at the end of it? First, let me say that I am not perfect. I don't have a, an authoritative interpretation of Scripture for you. I don't know everything, and I don't read everything perfectly. So it is very possible that I have gotten this wrong. But I really tried as hard as I can to make sure that what I'm telling you is the truth. There may actually be something I've left out. There may actually be no exceptions, no chance for remarriage, because there's some biblical material that would point us that direction as well. But I would say that one of the clearest exceptions that we have, which allows for a biblical divorce, is sexual immorality. In that same Matthew account, Christ says in Matthew 19, verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So we generally take that to mean that there are biblical grounds for divorce when sexual immorality is present. Now, the details here are open to some interpretation. What kind of sexual immorality crosses the threshold? How much is enough to trip that trigger? Does porn use count as grounds for divorce? How long does the wrong spouse have to choose whether they want to reconcile or whether they want to get a divorce? Is it like an eternal get-out-of-jail-free card? They committed adultery 20 years ago, so now you got tired of them. You can get out of this. We don't know. Some of those questions are beyond this sermon because my point is to preach the text, not to give a seminar on divorce. The other, I think, pretty clear biblical case which gives you a biblical grounds for divorce is desertion. That's from 1 Corinthians 7.15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if your spouse is an unbeliever, and they decided to leave you, or maybe they reveal themselves to be an unbeliever by them leaving you, then your divorce resulting from that abandonment is biblically grounded. I think it's clear. But some of the details here are messy too. What does separation mean? How far and how long do they have to go before you're free? What about abuse? I've just gave two different grounds for divorce, and I didn't mention abuse specifically in either one of them. But I think it's pretty clear biblically that if you're being abused, you don't have to stay in that marriage. I think that's true because abuse is a form of desertion such that they're leaving you. By their conduct toward you, they have separated from you. They have deserted you. I think that gives you grounds for divorce. And I'm sure that there are other cases where I may come to that same conclusion. But that brings us to the problem of remarriage. We talked about divorce, the grounds there, but now remarriage we have to discuss because that's what Jesus is actually talking about here. He says whoever divorces his wife, he doesn't have any 
other restrictions for them other than you can't marry another. I would say, and most Protestants would also take this view, that if you had biblical grounds for the divorce, you also have biblical grounds for the remarriage. You're free. God has called you to peace in this area. If there's no chance for reconciliation due to the other person dying, due to the other person getting remarried, I think you can remarry without violating these words of Jesus. I think that you getting remarried in that instance is in no way adultery. Regardless of whether your marriage was biblically acceptable, if you have remarried, it's a real marriage. So regardless of the circumstances before which led you here, it's a real marriage now. So be faithful now in this marriage. Enact the beauty of a biblical marriage now. Stay with this spouse now. Divorcing this one to return to the old one, is that's, that's not good. That's another divorce. It's two wrongs. That doesn't make a right. Even if you never should have left, that's just compounding what is wrong. My basic guiding rule when it comes to complicated ethical questions, which is what we get into when we talk to, about things like divorce, like remarriage, my basic question that I always try to answer is what is the shortest, clearest route from the point A of our messy reality to the point B of God's design? How do we get from where we are to what God has for his people? How do we get there as cleanly as, and as simply as possible? And in this case, the point B of God's design is one mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. So if your point A is your second marriage, your third marriage, your fourth marriage, for whatever reasons you had the previous divorces, pursue the point B of God's design for marriage. One mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman until death. And then keep going. Keep moving forward. That's how we recover and pursue God's design for our lives, even in the midst of the mess of our so common divorces. So where do we go from here? What do we do in light of this text? I think, first of all, we have to remember the gospel. Because when we talk about marriage in the Bible, most often it is being used as an illustration for Christ and his church. When Jesus is calling his people to faithfulness in their marriages, our faithfulness is built on God's faithfulness toward us. That just as Christ, the groom, is faithful to his bride, the church, you, the husband, should be faithful to your wife. That's why we're faithful. That's marriage is a perfect picture of God's perfect faithfulness. But that perfect picture only holds... If we stay married, God didn't divorce you, so you don't divorce your wife. Part of the reason that this subject is so important, part of the reason why Jesus says such hard things concerning marriage is because of that picture. Because marriage is an earthly picture of the spiritual reality of Christ and his church. Real quickly, let's look at Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 28. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Christ the groom loves his church, the bride, so our marriages tell the story and show a picture of the gospel as long as we're in them. Christ will never leave his church or forsake his church. That divorce is never going to happen. So our marriages should seek to enact that same steadfast faithfulness in every aspect. Christ has been faithful to you, so you should be faithful to your spouse. So we have to remember the gospel when we think about marriage and divorce. And in light of that, we have to know that there is grace for us. That for all of us who have gotten this wrong, all of us who have made a mistake, all of us who have gotten a divorce we shouldn't have gotten, who have been remarried when we shouldn't have been remarried, all of us who have endured the kinds of things that would lead to divorce, know that there is grace and love for you, even if you violated what Christ has told us today. We have to remember how Christ has been faithful to us. He loved us and gave himself up for us. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death in your place, and he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, so that your sins and your failures might not be counted against you, no matter what they are. Even if that's divorce, even if that's remarriage. Those aren't special categories of sin that didn't make it to the cross. He died for those just like he died for everything else. So know that. Trust that. If you failed here, if you've gotten an unbiblical divorce or you're unbiblically remarried, even if you haven't done these things, but your marriage that you have stayed in is far from the beautiful picture it should be because of the sin of you or your spouse, if your marriage is perfect, if you have somehow nailed every aspect of this, but yet have not trusted in Christ for the salvation of your sins, know that his grace is available for you just like it is for everyone else. Know that there's grace for you and life for you in Jesus. If you've never repented of your sin, you can do so now. You can receive the full forgiveness and full pardon that he has promised to all of his people who repent and believe. And even if you've already done so, if you are a person who is a Christian, who has repented, who has confessed, know that it's no longer held against you. Divorce isn't something that you redo every day because you're still divorced. You committed that sin and you've been forgiven. Just like you have for everything else. Don't allow these words, this sermon, to make you wallow in guilt and wallow in despair. Trust that Christ forgave you. And that when he forgave you, he forgave even that sin. When he cast them away from you, he cast them as far as the east is from the west. Even that sin. That's the love he has for his people. That's the love that Christ the groom has for his bride, the church. And it's my prayer that our marriages, our lives, will reflect that gospel in every aspect of everything that we do. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for these words this morning. Help for us to see the life in them. Help for us not just to hear commands and rules and things that we have to do or not do. But help for us to see your design behind it. The good things you've given us in it. 
Help for us to enact those in our lives, that our marriages might be marriages that we would be proud of. There will be marriages who reflect who you are and how you love your people. That even when we experience divorce, that we would know that there is grace for us even then. God, I pray for the people in this room who have been divorced. If they were unbiblical divorces, I pray that they will repent of that. And I pray that you'll forgive them of that sin, just like you have all the others. And God, for the people who have had a divorce and it was biblically biblically grounded, I pray that you might give them peace to work in their lives, to bind up those who are brokenhearted. Because divorce is painful and tragic in every instance. It's always due to sin. So be near to those who have experienced those effects. God, help us to move forward with the clearest shortest distance from the point A of our sinful, messy reality to the point B of your good design for us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.